So we are in week three of this series that we've been doing called Life on Purpose. And before we jump into today's message, I want to kind of give you a quick recap of what happened this weekend. Uh, we had the Cazone experience this weekend. About 30 folks showed up for the Cazone experience and we, uh, we sat at tables and we got to know each other and we began this process of discovering our purpose. And that's what Cazone means. It means God's heart, uh, God's dream or vision for your life. And, and we learned this, this phrase this week that everyone will go somewhere, but very few people will go somewhere on purpose. And so the whole weekend was helping us to discover what that purpose is, why God, how God has wired us and what he's created us in this season of our lives to do. And so we had an amazing week, and I hope that you all will talk to some of the folks. If you went to the Cazone experience, you're here, raise your hand and look around. Keep your hands up for a minute. Uh, so look around at the people that have their hands raised. I hope that you'll go up to them and say, hey, tell me about your weekend, because we're going to do it again in the fall. And we would love for the rest of you that didn't get a chance to do it this weekend to come back in the fall and do it with us, because I think that every one of them will tell you that they were blessed. I'll, 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 um, Wendell's not here, is he? Wendell, you're back there. All right, Wendell, uh, I'll tell you, Wendell, uh, I hope you don't mind, Wendell. Uh, if you do, just you can deadlift later and throw me somewhere because you got big muscles. Um, so Wendell is like, man, I don't know if this is for me, but by the end of the weekend, he was like, I am so glad that I was a part of this. And I love that because that's exactly what uh, so many people feel like. I don't know what Cazone is and, and the fear of not knowing. But Wendell's story was that, hey, I'm so glad that I became a part of this. Uh, his wife, Karen, she's like, man, I have this new ministry that I'm on fire for and I'm excited about. And so you might want to talk to her about that. But it was just a great weekend. And I hope that you'll join us in the fall and be a part of that as well. But because uh, here's the deal with us as a church, we want to make sure that we're living our lives on purpose. And we want to make sure that you're living your life on purpose. And so, uh, so that's why we're doing that. And so, uh, but back to our sermon series, which is Life on Purpose, because we're talking about our purpose. And, and, and I wonder, if you had no family and few friends, and it was at the end of your life, how would you want your assets dispersed once you died? You had very, no family, very few friends, and how would you want your uh, assets? What would you leave your inheritance to? Would you leave them to charity, or maybe you would leave everything to complete strangers, and so there's a story in 1988 where 13 years before he died of natural causes, a man named Luis Carlos, who was a wealthy Portuguese bachelor, uh, he signed an, a very unusual will because, you see, he had no children, he had no family, he had very few friends, and so he gave his fortune, and he was a wealthy, wealthy man, but he gave his fortune, he decided to give his fortune to 70 complete strangers who he randomly picked out of a Portuguese phone book. And so when his, when his heirs were notified of their inheritance, most of them thought they were being scammed. They thought it was like one of those emails that you would get because they got a phone call saying, hey, we want you to know that you're listed as one of the heirs to this guy that they'd never met and he had left them several thousands of dollars. It wasn't bad, right? That's not bad for just being in a phone book, listed in the phone book. But can you imagine the phone call? Like, can you imagine what it would have been like to get the phone call and say, hey, hey, Mr. Connor, I just wanted you to know that this man that you've never met before has left you $30,000. Like, imagine getting that phone call. What would you do uh, for the 70 that received it? They, they thought it was too good to be true. They're like, I don't know. I'll believe it when I get the check. As a matter of fact, just give me cash. Like, I'm not sure I even want to check. And, and, but it changed their lives. 
For those 70 people, it changed their lives. And it's the same thing that God does for us, except for the fact that he doesn't do it randomly. Like God just doesn't thumb through the phone book and say, "Mm, I'll pick you, I'll pick you, I'll pick you. But he chooses us purposefully and intentionally. And he says to each of us, I want you to be in my family. I want you to be a part of my family. And in this series, we've been talking about purpose. And I want you to know that much of our purpose is about identity. It's about who and what we find our identity in. Because essentially, I don't know if you realize this or not, but who or what you find your identity in often drives and controls your activity or the things that you do in life. And today I want to talk about how do I embrace my God-given identity. And it would be amazing. I mean, think about it. It would be amazing to randomly receive a phone call that says, hey, you've inherited $30,000 from this person that you never met. But think about this. Did you realize that God, that the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the galaxies into existence, the one who created everything that we enjoy today, sees you. And he says these very words to every one of us. I want to give you all of the rights. I want to give you all of the privileges. I want to give you all of the property, all of the inheritance that I have as God of the universe who created all things. That's a new identity. That's a game changer for our lives and so we've been talking about this idea through Ephesians chapter 111. We've been looking at this scripture every week from the message. And it says these words. It says, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. That it's in Christ that we find out our identity. And it's in Christ that we find out what we are living for or our activity. And so I would... Uh, We've been focusing on identity because if we don't get the identity part right, if we don't understand who we are, then we won't get the activity part right, the things that we do, the way that we live our lives. So I want us to say this again together, this passage of scripture. Let's just read it out loud together one more time this week. Uh, let's, I'll say one, two, three, read, and let's read it out loud together. Ready? One, two, three, read. Let's read it one more time. You ready? One, two, three, go again. It's in Christ, it's in Jesus that we find out who we are, our identity. And it's in Christ that we find out what we are living for, our activity. And so we need to know our identity. And I want to challenge you today how important it is that we know our identity because it affects our, our, our activity. You see, we search for our identity in so many places. And many of you can relate to this because we start with ourselves and we find our identity and our wants and the things that we desire. But those things are constantly changing. And so we feel like our identity is constantly changing. And then we, we try and find our identity in other people. And so we find people that we look up to, people that, that we want to be like, and we find our identity in them, but they are constantly changing too. Like I told you, when I was a kid, we watched Dukes of Hazard, and I wanted to be like Bo and Luke Duke, and I told you how I'd scrape across the hood of my dad's car and how I'd roll the windows down and jump because I wanted to be like, like I found my identity in the Lukes. 
But then that changed because chips came on. And then I wanted to be like John and, Pon- and, and Officer John and Poncharello, and I wanted to be like them, and I'd get my boots on, and I would tuck my pants in my boots, and I'd put a fake badge on, and I would, I would wear a football helmet for my motorcycle helmet, and I'd ride around the, my neighborhood and my bike because I found my identity in chips. But then as I began to grow up, I began to emulate other people, and my identity was constantly changing. So we find our identity in people, and and when that doesn't work, then we try and find our identity in the world. And we begin to want to emulate things that we see in the world. And, 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 and I remember that when I was young in ministry, I wanted to be like a guy named Louis Giglio. And I would, I would watch him on TV and I would watch him on the computer. I would travel to Atlanta to be in person and I wanted to be like him. And I tried to emulate him and would try and dress like him and try and talk like him and, and wanted to be like him. And that's what we do. We find our identity in the world and we find out that doesn't work. And then if we do, uh, we find our identity in religion. We find our identity in religion and we focus on our activity that if we do the part of the law, if we follow the rules, that maybe we'll be good enough in the sight of God. And today, this is what's happening in Galatia. This little church in Galatia is trying to find its identity in following the rules and doing whatever they can to get into, uh, into God's um, approval, to get his approval. And so we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your version Bible app, open it up, Galatians chapter 3. And as we read Galatians, we find that there were these people called Judaizers. And, and they, were, they came into the church in Galatia, and they said these things. They said, hey, we know that Jesus died for us. And they all agreed to that. And he goes, and we know that, they, that he redeemed us. But there's a few more things they said that you have to do to be fully saved. He said, we know that Jesus died for us. We know that because of his death and resurrection, he's redeemed us. But there's still some things you have to do if you want to be fully saved. And they were teaching the church this. And maybe you've been in a part of a church or maybe you grew up in a church where you thought you had to do certain things to be fully loved by God, that it wasn't enough just to accept your identity and what Jesus did on the cross as he died for your sins, and you've accepted that, and you, and you became a believer, but then you said, but i got to keep doing things. i got to keep putting on a show. i got to keep accomplishing things to gain and regain the love of God. And that's what the Judaizers were teaching that he loves me, but he'd really love me if I did this. And it's this idea of what we call legalism uh, in the church world. And it's where we think that our acceptance of God is based on our activity. And Paul corrects right away in Galatians chapter 1. And he says, wait. He says, hold on a minute. He says, wait, Jesus died once and for all. Like, that's what rescues us. That's what saves us. It's not our good works. It's not our good deeds. You can't get God to love you more for the things that you do. We do the things that we do because we love God, not to get him to love us more. And, 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 and so, in fact, the theme of Galatians, if you were to pick a theme for the whole book of Galatians, the theme would, been, would be that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let me just say that again. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. 
There's nothing else that you can do. You can't add or subtract from the work that Christ has done for us. So chapter one is all about, in Galatians, is all about that. And then chapter two, Paul tackles this idea of hypocrisy and says, hey, you can't live that way either. And then we get to chapter three. And I love how Paul begins chapter three. He says, and in verse one of chapter three, he says something like this. He says, someone must have put a spell on you. He's like, someone must have put a spell on you because you think that the work of Christ was not good enough. And now you're living a way that is not at all what Christ has prescribed. You're trying to earn more of God's love and that doesn't work. He said, someone must have put a spell on you because you're thinking that you need to add to what Jesus has already done for you on the cross. And church, hear me when I say this, we don't have to add anything. We just get to receive it. And next he goes through, Paul goes through 2,000 years of history, church history in Galatians chapter 3. It begins with the promise that Abraham, uh, made to Abraham that he would be a father to many nations and that God would bless him. And then he talks about Moses. He says, hey, Moses came along and he was given the law. And the law was turned into 613 rules that if you were a Jew, that you had to follow every single one of them. But that that wasn't the purpose of the law. Paul talks about this not being the purpose, that the purpose of the law was to show us that we couldn't save ourselves, that there was no way that we could fulfill the law. Listen, I want you to hear this. The law can't save you. It simply points, to, points us to Christ, and it points us to our need for a Savior. The law is this thing that the guardrails in which we live our life, and it stops us from doing the things that we shouldn't, but it doesn't change our hearts. The law doesn't change our heart. Only Jesus can change our hearts. And then here's where we catch up in verse 21 of Galatians today. And here's what Paul says, starting in verse 21. He says, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? And he goes, absolutely not. If the law would give us new life, we would be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. The law doesn't rescue us from our sin is what he says. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Let me just say that again. So we receive God's promise of freedom by what? Only by believing in Jesus Christ. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to underline that last phrase that we receive the promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ, that believe in Jesus and your life is changed and there's nothing else that can change your life than Jesus. And verse 23 goes on, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under the guard by the law. We were kept in product, product, protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way, Paul says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we be, could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. We talked about last week putting on these new clothes. And there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. 
You are his heirs and God's promises to Abraham belong to you. And so I need to realize that if I'm continually trying to gain the acceptance of God, I'll never live in my purpose. That if I'm constantly living my life trying to gain God's approval, that I'll never live in my purpose. I live in my purpose. I live in my purpose when I receive that God has already chosen me and welcomed me into his family the moment I said yes to Jesus. So the first thing that we need to understand this morning is this, that my identity is found in God's family. You want to know where your identity is found in? For me, it wasn't found in the Dukes of Hazard. No, that's a joke. It wasn't found in Chips. It wasn't found in Louis Giglio. For me, my identity became real when I found it in God. And remember, verses 26 through 27, remember what Paul said. He said, for you are all children of God. Now, he's talking to the church, right? He's talking to those believers. He's talking to those who are Christians. And he's saying to the church, he's saying, listen, you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's like, so if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're in the family. You've been adopted into the family of God. And all those who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. In other words, he's saying, Paul's saying, listen, you get a new last name. When you say yes to Jesus, your name is now the name of God. That I am is God's name, so your name is now Rick Am, right? Your name is Jennifer Am, your name, because that, that's God's last name, Am. And so we are, we have his name and we share his likeness. And when a child is born, what do we say? We say, oh, look, look at this cute and amazing little child. Look at, he has your nose. Maybe you remember that. He has your nose or, or she has your ears or he has your lips. I mean, we all say about, uh, uh, about Mackenzie's son, Hudson, he's got your hair, right? Like that's what he hears. It's like, Hudson's got your hair. And, and, and we, we all say that because our child, a child looks like his or her parents. And we also have God's likeness. As we grow in maturity, as we grow in our faith, listen, we begin, we begin to look like God. We begin to share his values. We start to care about the things that God cares about and, and, and produce, that produces the activity in our lives. That when we begin to take on the characteristics of our Father, our Heavenly Father, that begins to dictate how we live our lives. It begins to reveal to us our activity. And Paul says, listen, you put on Christ like you're putting on new clothes. And we're like, well, what's that mean? That's baptism, right? That's baptism. Baptism has nothing to do with salvation, but it has everything to do with your identity, and so when we're baptized, we say this, we says the old, the old self needs to go and the new self has come. And when we put you down in the water, you die to your old self. And when we bring you up out of the water, you are into your new clothes. You put on your new clothes in Christ and identifying with your family. It's your coming out party. It's you saying, I'm declaring that I am a part of the family of God. That's what baptism is. As you go in the water, your old family name is gone. And as you come up out of the water, your new family, family name is here. You have a new identity. And think about how powerful that is, that how powerful baptism is. What a beautiful picture of God's grace and how we die to our old selves and we come out of the water new. And if you haven't thought about getting baptized, I wanna encourage you 
Maybe you've been a Christian and you've never been baptized. Maybe you remember, I was baptized a long time ago when I was a kid, but I don't even remember it. But maybe now is the time to be baptized. Let me encourage you to sign up for baptism. It's, it's so simple. You can just follow the directions on the screen uh, because we're going to be doing baptisms on May 28th. And, and why? Why is it so important? Because baptism is how we get to show the world that your life has changed. Baptism is the way of saying and declaring, I am now a member of the family of God. I'm one of you. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was broken, but now I'm whole. I was unwanted, but now I'm desired. I was hopeless, but now I'm hope-filled. It's a place where you can say, I finally have a place to belong. And it's in the family of God. You see, we are united with Christ. And because we are united with him, we don't have to keep seeking more of his approval. Does that mean that we don't confess our sins? No, we do confess our sins, but we do it because we know that we are loved by him and we know that it breaks God's heart when we sin. But we don't do it to gain more of his love. We do it out of love for him. And I have to remind myself, I have to remind myself of this and I have to remind myself of what God says about his children. Like it's in the Bible when Jesus got baptized Here's what the father said to the son. The father said to the son in Matthew 3, 17, he said, this is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy. That's what the father said to the son that you, he said, you are my dearly loved child and you bring me great joy. And let me just tell you that God is saying the very same thing to you. He says the very same thing to you. He says, you're my daughter and you bring me great joy. He says, you are my son, and you bring me great joy. And you might be thinking, but Lord, like how can I bring you joy when I do this, or when I did that, or when I said this, or when I thought that? How can I bring you joy? And he says, you bring me joy, and nothing will ever change that. You are my son, you are my daughter, and you bring me great joy. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul declares that we are all God's glorious inheritance. For a God who has everything looks at us and says these words. He says, check it out, you're all I want. He's like, you're all I want. I created the world, I created everything in the world, but you're all I want. But God, you could have anything, right? That's what I think, God, you created everything. You could have anything. And he says to me, but Rick, you're all I want. But God, I have some blemishes, but you're all I want. But God, I have a past, but you're all I want. You see, I want you to hear this today, church. God chooses you. He chooses you. You're all that he wants. And still we find ourselves striving for more of his affection and more of his approval and more of his love. But I got to tell you, God's love is unconditional. He loves you the same today as he will love you tomorrow. He doesn't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He can't love you any more or any less. And we need to find ourselves being freed from the need to achieve more love from him. Now I get for some of us, that's really hard, right? Like so that's really hard, but we need to let God free us from the need to achieve. You see, we have this inner struggle we have this inner struggle going on that we want to focus more on doing rather than believing. 
And, and we love the Lord with all our heart. We love the Lord with all our mind and all our soul. And we want to stay focused on him. But what happens is we begin to think maybe we can get closer to him if we do more for him. And we start doing things out of guilt or we start doing things hoping to get God's approval. And it doesn't work that way. And this doesn't just affect your relationship with Jesus when you live that way. It affects your relationships with everything in your life. And you trust more in what you can do than what God has already done. And some of us, we grew up in homes. And this is why it's hard for some of us. We grew up in homes where there was no unconditional love. Like we grew up in a home where you had to do things the right way if you wanted to receive any kind of love. That you had to mow the yard the exact correct way. Or you had to put the dishes away the exact way. Or you had to do your chores perfectly. Or you had to do this or that. You had to do it the right way if you were going to receive any love. Or maybe you grew up and you were just constantly told that you weren't good enough. And you still hear those soundtracks playing in your mind today. You do whatever it takes for the approval of others, hoping that one day they'll say these words, I'm proud of you, I love you. And you never knew that there was a heavenly father who says every day, I'm proud of you. You're my son, you're my daughter, and you bring me great joy. Galatians goes on, Paul goes on in chapter four, verse four, and he said, but then, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. He sent his son because he saw you and he chose you. God knew that, he, that you needed rescued, and so he sent him Jesus. And he said, I understand. I understand that you're thinking that you're not good enough, that you're thinking that if I live in my purpose, I'm going to have to do more and I'm going to have to hold on to all these laws. And if I break one of these laws or one of these rules, I'm going to break my relationship with you and I'm going to have to start all over and then I'm going to have to build my trust back with you. But God says that's not the way it is. That's not so. And so at the right time, he sent God's son, sent his son for us. In verse five, it goes on and it says, Why? said he, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could what? Adopt us as his very own children. Listen, we all have a price that only one person can pay. We all have a debt that only one person can pay and his name is Jesus. Everything else failed. The law couldn't rescue us, but God did through his son, Jesus. And because of that, each of us, each of us that has said yes to Jesus has the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to walk in our purpose. And so when the law couldn't save us, Jesus shows up on the scene and he pays the penalty for our sin. And then we are adopted into the family of God. I love the, uh, the Parsleys, their story and how uh, Bo has come into their lives, but I love that Bo hasn't just been adopted into the Parsley family, right? Like Bo has been adopted into the warehouse family and, and, and everyone knows Bo and every, everyone takes care of him as their own. And that's exactly what God does for us as he adopts us into the family of God. Now adoption today and what Paul was talking about is different from adoption uh, in the ancient world. And the common understanding in the ancient world of adoption was that it would have been a functional thing to do. 
Like it was a practice of the elite, especially emperors and royalty, to secure succession and legacy and inheritance. And so adopted sons were, were pulled into a bigger story and expected to fulfill a bigger purpose. See, adoption wasn't just about rescuing orphans. It was the promise of a future. And it was a promise of a future. And there's going to be a future for you. There's going to be a future for you when God adopts you into his family. Everything changes the moment that you're adopted into the family of God. And the greatest privilege of the gospel is that God saw us and he adopted us. But so many of us still think that there are so many times when we fail God. And God says, there's nothing that you could do that would change the way that I love you because I adopted you into my family and I've chosen you. And so as we live our earthly lives, we're still learning to adopt this new mindset that we've been adopted by God and that everything changes when we receive that. And so when you learn to understand that your identity is in Christ, your past changes, your present changes, and your future changes. The fact that God would choose any of us and say, you are my child, should transform the way that we think and it should cause us to truly live as God's children and not just as his creation. And so we need to step into the reality of being God's child, not just his creation. God, the good father, he knows us best and he is the one who loves us the most. He knows everything about us and he still loves us. And Paul says that that should cause us to call him Abba, Father. He says this in verse six, he says, and because we are his children, because we've been adopted in the family of God, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, the Holy Spirit, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. Can you just say Abba, Father with me? Just say it out loud. Abba, Father. See, calling God Abba is calling him daddy. And calling God daddy, it doesn't put him down. Like it's not, it's not um, reckless to call God father, to call him daddy, because it brings him close. Because he's not just my Lord, he's also my dad. And as I have received the son, so I can approach the father. And so there's this story as we close of a wealthy art collector this art collector had collection that was just, it surpassed every other art collection in the world. It was a huge art collection. And as he was preparing his will, in the midst of preparing his will, his son passed away. And after burying his son, the wealthy art collector realizes that he no longer has any heir. He has no one to leave his inheritance to. And so he writes the will, his will, and as he does, he passes away after he writes his will. And, and there's an auction of everything that he owned. And it got the attention of everyone across the world, art collectors all over the world, because he had pieces of art that nobody had ever seen for, for a very long time. And so they come to this auction and, 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 they're, um, and, and pieces that have been behind glass and pieces that no one had ever knew existed were going to be auctioned off that day. And so the auctioneer on that day approaches the podium and, and she says these words. She says, the auction will begin with this first piece. 
and everybody's excited with anticipation. They can't wait to see what piece of art is going to be led with. And the auctioneer pulls out a little piece, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And on this eight and a half little uh, piece of paper, there's a drawing that the art collector's son drew many years ago. It's a drawing actually of himself. It's a self-portrait. And everyone looked at it and they're looking at it and they're like, well, that's not very good. Like, that's just, that's just like a piece of paper and, and pencil. And, and, and that's not the art we came for. Like, we want the good stuff. Like, show us the Michelangelo. Show us some of the amazing art pieces you have. And then eventually the room becomes silent because no one's bidding on this little self-portrait that the owner son drew years ago. But then out of the corner of the auctioneer's eye, she sees this elderly man walking down the aisle and coming forward, and she recognizes this elderly man as one of the workers of the wealthy art collector. And the elderly man comes forward with only $2 in his pocket, and he pulls out the $2, and he says, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. And the auctioneer slams her gavel down and says, sold. And he takes the piece, the eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, and he takes the piece with tears in his eyes. And he stands there in front of everybody for a moment because he can't believe that he has something to remember his master by. And the auctioneer quickly says, auction over and slams the gavel one more time. And everyone is kind of scrambling at this point. And then there's a riot beginning. Why is the auction over? They don't understand. There's more art to be bought. We came with money. We're ready to spend our money. We're ready to buy the good stuff. And she picks up a piece of paper. And she says, if everybody be quiet and listen. And she reads the following words. The will explicitly states that the person that is willing to accept my son and to accept the gift that he is given is able to experience all the benefits of the Father, and they are now my only heir. Church, God says the same thing to you and to me, that if you will receive Jesus, if you will receive his Son and accept the work that he has done for you on the cross, you become an heir. And you can call him Abba, Father. Abba, an endearing word. It's like a little boy or a little girl calling their dad, Daddy. And I wonder, can we get to that place as Jesus, we discover identity in Christ to call him Daddy. But it's also Father, Abba, Father. Because you know when dad and father together, you have this idea of intimacy with daddy, but you also have this picture of authority with father. Because we all know that something happens when dad walks into the room. You may be scared about what's happening in the dark, but as soon as the perfect father walks into the room, everything changes. God is good, and it's good to be near him. Abba, Father. Listen, you've been adopted and you are children of God with a new name, a new purpose, a new identity. And that allows us to live in purpose and walk in purpose. Because here's the truth. Our identity 
forms our activity. Who you find your identity in drives the things that you do, your activity. So church, let me just ask you today, where do you put your identity? Where do you find your identity? Do you find it in the world? Do you find it in yourself? Do you find it in religion or do you find it in Jesus? Because wherever you find your identity, that's what drives your activity. This morning, we're gonna receive communion. And one of the things that Jesus did with his disciples as he was revealing himself to them and those last moments at the last supper in the upper room before, right before his, his arrest and his crucifixion, he gathers the disciples together and he said, listen, you're gonna forget who you find your identity in. And so I'm gonna leave this really special moment for you to be a reminder of who your identity should be found in. And he left us the Lord's Supper. He left us communion. And that night he took the bread and he broke the bread. And as he broke it, he said, this is my body given for you. And he said, take and eat. And as often as you do, remember, I love you. And then at the end of the meal, he took the cup. And he said, this, this is my new covenant my blood which has been shed for you. And he said, take and drink this. And as often as you do, remember my great love for you. And so this morning, we're going to receive communion. And as we do, and as you take the bread, and as you take the juice, my prayer is, is that you will be reminded of who it is that you find your identity in. Are you placing your trust in Jesus? Is that where you find your identity are you trying to find your identity in so many other different things? Because remember, what you place, what you find your identity in is what drives how you live your life. So if you find your identity in Christ, you'll find your activities to be those of Jesus. So I'm gonna invite our helpers to come, our communion helpers, if you would come up front. We're gonna pass the communion to you. You'll receive the bread first, and then you'll receive the juice and so I invite you, once you receive the bread, just hold on to it and we'll all take it together. And then likewise with the juice.